Amen. So every great Christmas movie, or most great Christmas movies, have a villain. Um, whether uh, it's the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol, who eventually finds redemption, or it's the corrupt Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life, um, whether it's Marv and Harry from Home Alone, or maybe one of the greatest Christmas movie villains, Hans Gruber from Die Hard. Um, and I told the first service, don't write me later and tell me that Die Hard isn't a Christmas movie. It clearly is. And so I was watching Die Hard last night. Sonda walked in. She said, I think her exact words were, why is this on? I said, because it's Christmas. Okay, that's why it's on. Um, we know in our guts, even Hollywood knows, even Hollywood knows that Christmas is about a war. Um, it, Christmas tells the story of war. It's this epic war between good and evil, and the war isn't about whether your cashier says happy holidays or Merry Christmas. It's not a war of words. It's a war of hearts. It's a war of values. It's a war of worship. And this war is graphically depicted in Revelation chapter 12, and it tells the story of the Messiah being born and this, and this um, great dragon that wants to destroy him and wants to destroy all of his people. That's the way Revelation 12 depicts it. And, 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 and the, the, the dragon doesn't want to destroy the Christ because, uh, because Jesus is, is just a great guy or because Jesus is some kind of Easter bunny. Revelation 12.5 12, tells us that the reason the dragon, Satan, wants to destroy the Messiah is because the Messiah will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The reason evil hates Jesus is because Jesus is the true and the just and the universal king that has been promised and foretold by Scripture. 1 John 3, 8 says that Jesus came, the Son of God came uh, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy evil in your life, in my life, and to break evil's neck. Um, the real war going on is a war of worship. It's a war about the universal kingship of Jesus. And that war is raging in each of our hearts and each of our minds. If your life was a Christmas movie, what movie would it be? Who would be, Travis, I got to ask later what you're thinking, but uh, <laughs> who would be the villain? Who would you be? Matthew 2 gives us some interesting characters. You've got the magi that, that travel miles and miles and miles from the east to lay down gifts uh, to baby Jesus and to fall down at their faces and worship him. You've got the scribes and priests who say, well, yeah, he's going to be born over in Bethlehem, but they don't even have enough curiosity to go and, and seek him themselves. And then you've got Herod who's troubled and he's terrified and he's angry and he's threatened and he's obsessed with his own status. And, 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 I, and I believe those are the same responses we have to Jesus today. Today I want to tell you a story about two kings. Matthew 2 introduces us to King Herod and King Jesus. And there's a spoiler alert to this story. Only one of those kings is the true king, and only one of those kings is alive today. We want to look at some different ways that we respond to Jesus, and at the end we're going to talk about a few ways to have a lousy Christmas. All right? So if you want to have a really lousy Christmas, I'm going to give you a few ways to do that. All right? So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 2. 
Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 1 is really filled with good news. As we read the narrative of Jesus' birth in Matthew 1, we see this incredible promise fulfilled. Uh, The new and true David has come. The one promised has come. He's born of a virgin. He's born in fulfillment of prophecy. He's born miraculously. His birth is announced by angels. And and his name, Jesus, means God saves. He's come to deliver us and rescue us from the stranglehold of sin. His title is Emmanuel, God with us. He steps into our muck and into our mess and with our brokenness. And so far, all of that is great news. We can be excited about all that. But as we enter into chapter 2, we get clued in that there's a problem on the horizon. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, in the days of Herod the king, there's a shadow character. There's this imposter king who casts a dark cloud over all the good that we've just read about. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the one born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, it's written in the prophet, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. A ruler, see that, a ruler. Herod isn't afraid of some kind of Easter bunny Jesus. Herod is afraid of the one who's come to rule the universe. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go go search diligently for the child. And when he found him, bring me his address so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they'd seen when, they, uh, when it rose went before them, and it came to rest over the place where the child was, and they saw the star. Look at all the action verbs here. They've, they've come, they've sought, now they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. They fell down. And they worshiped him. Then they open their treasures and they offer gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Not your typical baby shower gifts, but gifts you would give to a king, a ruler. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. We saw this last week. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Then Herod, when he saw he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Um. So Matthew 2, again, begins with this dark cloud. We've had this great news, Jesus, God saves, Emmanuel, God with us, he's come to rescue us. But chapter 2, verse 1 says, but this happened in the days of Herod the king. An imposter sits on the throne. His name is Herod, but he's called himself and demands other people call him Herod the Great. He was a builder, and his palace cast a shadow over Jerusalem. And a few miles from Jerusalem, he built another palace uh, on a hill, and it was called the Herodium. He named it after himself. So you hear a little bit of uh, 
pretentiousness here, right? His shadow casts, uh, his palace casts a shadow over Galilee, and his, his, uh, his, his ruthlessness casts a shadow over those he rules, and his memory casts a shadow all the way down through the pages of history. He was fearful, he was paranoid, he was famously immoral, he was controlling, he murdered some of his own children because he thought they were eyeing his throne. He slaughtered innocents without batting an eye. He's a bad dude. As we read about this evil man who casts a shadow over this narrative, he puts every Christmas movie villain to shame. Hans Gruber has nothing on the sky. The Magi travel miles just to fall down on their faces before the Messiah, just to give him what they have. The scribes and religious elites point the way, but they're not willing to go there themselves because that would require some inconvenience on their part. Herod is troubled and terrified and angry and controlling. Where do we fit in that story? Who are you in that? Who am I? Herod's core problem is that he's sitting on the throne of his own life. Not only is he sitting on the throne of Jerusalem, but he is sitting on the throne as ruler and lord of his life. And Herod is who I become when I sit on the throne of my life. Herod is who I become when I sit on the throne of my life. And we may bristle at that. We may say, no, I don't, I don't act anything like Herod. I'm a good guy. I want to, see, there's good guys, there's bad guys, and I'm a good guy, and Herod's a bad guy, so I can't be like him. Herod was unsuccessful in destroying Jesus as a child. 30 years later, his son would treat Jesus with contempt and send Jesus back to Pilate to be executed. But who was it that was demanding Jesus' execution? It was the Jewish people. The most moral, the most upright, the most religious, the most scrupulous, the best people who've ever lived. And the people who had been prepared and primed for hundreds of years by the prophet, they ended up acting like Herod and filling out uh, what he had hoped to accomplish. Behind Herod at Jesus' birth and behind the crucifixion story at Jesus' death, you've got this dragon pulling the strings on people in order to destroy the Messiah who came to be the ruler of the nations, the ruler of the universe. And, and we say, well, I'm one of the good guys. I'm not like Herod. Man, the best people on the planet, the most moral people who've ever lived demanded Jesus' crucifixion. When Jesus isn't on the throne of my life, I become like Herod. When Jesus isn't on the throne of your life, you become like Herod. And if we don't agree with that, then we've got to really, we have really overestimated our abilities and we've really underestimated the seduction and the damage and the ugliness of sin. And the war here is all about worship. It's all about who is your true king. Who's my true king? Jesus doesn't care what our lips say. Jesus cares about who is enthroned on your heart, who is enthroned in your life. And so when a sinner is sitting on the throne of my life, my life gets thrown off course. When a sinner is sitting on the throne of my life, my life gets thrown off course. And so how to, how to have a terrible Christmas? Anybody want, to try, want some tried and true methods of how to have a terrible Christmas? See, Herod had it all. He had it all. Um, but that first Christmas, he didn't lay in bed with visions of sugar plums dancing in his head. He had it all, but he had a terrible Christmas because he laid in bed worried that what he had was going to get taken away from him. 
He laid in bed knowing that a true king had come. He knew Psalm 72 about a just ruler. He knew what the prophets said. He knew what happened to Pharaoh back in the day. Christmas was good news to the vulnerable. Christmas was good news to the needy. But it was bad news for Herod. And it's still bad news for Herod. Herod had a terrible Christmas, even though he had it all. Man, Herod lived, uh, he lived large. The best mansions, the finest stuff, huge houses, he threw incredible parties. He had power, he had status, he had celebrity, he was everything our culture worships. Herod was everything our culture worships. He had it all and he got things done. Today he'd have his own reality show, probably have his own cologne, would be wearing Herod jeans. He'd be featured in all the gossip blogs and he'd be, he'd be a great political candidate for the left or the right. Underneath all his bluster, he was deeply insecure. Murdered family members, grasped for power, and a newborn baby threw him into panic. Herod is idolatrous and he's wicked and he's twisted and Herod is who I become when I'm sitting on the throne of my own life. And a lot of us are trying to sit on the throne of our own life. The same idols that Herod worshipped, the same idols that Herod trusted in, the same idols that twisted Herod into a monster are the idols that are seductive to us today. The very same idols that twisted Herod into becoming a monster are the idols that we're tempted toward today, and they're still seductive today. So if we want to have a a lousy Christmas and we want to have a terrible life, here's three idols that we can bow down and worship. So control is the first one. The, The world's a mess. Will we say that Herod was a little controlling based on what we've, I mean, he kills babies and a little bit controlling, right? And so this, this world is a mess, and our lives are unpredictable, and usually our response to the mess and the unpredictability of this life and this world is to clamp down and control. And the more insecure we are, the less rooted in Christ we are, the more we try to control situations, and the more we try to control people around us. And so how do you respond when people don't do things your way? Do you normally handle that pretty well? Um, Maybe that's why it bothers us so much at Christmas dinner when Uncle Joe has different political beliefs than, 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 than you because how come he's not right? I mean, how come he just can't let, I got the answers, how come he won't listen to me? This is why our kids push all of our buttons because they refuse to be controlled by us. You might be thinking, I, I wouldn't have control issues at all if people would just do things the way I want them to be done. I mean, that's not... Not too much to ask, just do what I want, and then I'm not going to have control issues. Um, There'll be counselors to talk with you after the service, all right? So our kids, our family, these are constant reminders that chaos can't be controlled. You know, just just before the service, we had technical difficulties, and I was up there, and I I was frustrated. I was like, Benny, why does this have to do on, why does this have to happen on Christmas Eve Eve, you know? What's that about? Why, why won't it just work? Isn't that our question? Why won't life just work? And Benny said, well, Matt, you know, if things always worked, 
then we'd never ask God for help. And I said, Benny, that's exactly what I'm going to be preaching, but that's not what I want to talk about right now, okay? And then Kellen walked up there, and everything magically started working. He just had to look at the screen, and it worked, and I'm still frustrated about that, but I'll get over it, okay? Dan Allender writes, our usual strategy for dealing with the mess of life is to seek control over it. We try to gain power in the world in order to have an effective platform to manage our existence. And that's what we do. We try to manage our existence. And Herod was good at managing. He was good at managing chaos. And he lashed out at contempt at anyone and anything that challenged his sovereign rule. He couldn't stand it when people thought for themselves. And that's what sin looks like. And it's seductive and it, it's tempting And some of us today, we've given up on control, and instead we've sunk into despair. We're not even, we're not grasping anymore, but we're not swimming either. Some of us today have gone passive. And there's got to be a third option between control, grasping for control, and going totally passive. And the good news is there is another way. But when I think about a controller, I think about Jacob in Genesis. He was a manipulator. He was a schemer. Jacob was such a controller and such a manipulator that he could get you to do something and you think it was your idea and you would thank him for the opportunity for doing that thing that he wanted you to do. He was good. But God loved Jacob too much to leave Jacob in that state. And so God thwarted Jacob's plans. God messed with Jacob's life. And one day, one night, God came to him in the, disguised as a mysterious stranger, and he has a wrestling match with Jacob, and they wrestle all night long. And Jacob says, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. And God breaks Jacob's hip and gives him a new name. And Jacob limped away from that encounter with God, a changed man, a new man with a new identity and a new appreciation for weakness a new appreciation for surrender. And what the gospel teaches us is that strength is found in weakness. Power is found in surrendering to Jesus. Dan Allender puts it this way, what we can control is our willingness to seek God in the midst of chaos. You cannot control people. I cannot control people. I cannot control the chaos around me. But what is 100% within my control is whether I will seek God in the midst of it. You have 100% control over whether or not you will seek God in the midst of the chaos. And the gospel way, the Jesus way, is so different than the Herod way. And we find that freedom is found only and surrender to Jesus. And so I ask, what's frustrating you this Christmas? What are, what are Marv and Harry messing with this Christmas? What's beyond your grasp? What if that frustration, what if that frustration is God's invitation to depend on him? What if that frustration is God's invitation to truly surrender to him and to find that grace is enough and to discover that Jesus is enough? What if God is thwarting you because he loves you and he wants you to trust him? So control is an idol that we, man, we still bow down to that one. The next one is comparison, comparison. Herod's make an idol out of comparison. Uh, He had the biggest palaces. He threw the biggest parties. His Instagram was lit. Am I saying that right? Lit. Probably had a lot of followers. We would all be checking out what's Herod doing right now. Oh, he's live Let's see what Herod's doing. Um, we, would, we would envy him. 
And I guarantee you, you're going to have a you're going to have a terrible Christmas if you spend your Christmas comparing your life to the highlight reels of others. I promise you, you will have a lousy Christmas and a lousy life if you spend your time comparing your marriage, your kids, your job, your health, your situation, your gifts, your whatever to other people. Maybe you're comparing your worst to their best, but even when you compare their worst to your best, that good feeling doesn't last long. It's never enough. I love the movie The Greatest Showman and Jenny Lynn, the character Jenny Lynn sings, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Jesus said something pretty close to this. We can gain the world, but it will not satisfy us. And Herod was great at the comparison game. A lot of us are great at the comparison game, and it brings out something ugly in us. And it's never going to be enough. There's always going to be somebody with more, somebody with better. Comparison happens when we fix our eyes horizontally on those around us rather than vertically on the king who's on his throne. Comparison always leads to contempt. Contempt is that hatred towards self or others. Comparison always leads either to self-contempt or contempt for others, and contempt always wants to destroy. Whenever we compare, we feel contempt, and we want to destroy either ourselves or others. Herod uh, was great at the possession game. He found his value in stuff. Man, we've moved past that in the past 2,000 years, haven't we? Anybody struggle with that one? We struggle with wanting more. Herod was all about stuff. And this is the time of year when we get really caught up or we're tempted to get really caught up and having the best toys, the nicest clothes. But the next day we feel as empty as all those boxes. Dan Allender, I want to quote him again. He writes, the trouble, whether we earn minimum wage or a six-figure salary, is that we always feel like just a little more will be enough. But then that little more comes. And it seems to run through our hands so quickly, we feel like we're trying to grab the wind. I see some heads nodding, like maybe we've experienced that. Talk about a war on Christmas. I want to quote Relevant Magazine from a couple years ago. Uh, The author wrote, Christ is taken out of Christmas when we forget that his birth, his life, were all about. It was about caring for the poor. Giving things away instead of trying to accumulate more. It was about loving our neighbors, even the ones that don't believe like we do. It was about going to other people's level instead of expecting them always to come to ours. There is a real war on Christmas, but it won't play out in advertising, marketing, or fast food marquees. The real war on Christmas happens within each one of us. When we try to reconcile the values of a consumer-driven culture with the birth of a Savior who wants us to let go of the things of this world. And that's a war we must keep on fighting. Making an idol out of stuff is a sure way to have a terrible Christmas and a really lousy life. Herod's live life of selfish taking. The gospel alternative is to live a life of generous giving. Herod is who I become when I sit on the throne of my life. Herod is who you become when you sit on the throne of your life. So there's two kings in Matthew 2. One lived in a palace. One was born in a stable. One took 
the other gives. One casts a shadow, the other shines a light. Matthew 2.19 says Herod died. One of those kings died, and the other one's still living. Who's on the throne of your life? That's a question I just really hope we'll ask. Who's on the throne of your life? Now, I'm not talking about your lips. I'm not talking about what our lips flap around and say. I'm talking about who's on the throne of your life. Who's on the throne of your heart? How is God using frustration or loss or struggle to invite you to trust him? To invite you to depend on him? To invite you to surrender to him in ways that scare you? The people that are going to have the greatest Christmas, listen, the people that are going to have the greatest Christmas are those who discover this life-changing and world-changing truth that Jesus is worthy, Jesus is better, and Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough, even when your friend's Instagram looks better than yours. Jesus is enough when your neighbor's or on all those vacations and you're stuck in sweet water. Jesus is enough when your child is broke down. Jesus is enough when life hasn't turned out the way you thought it would. Jesus is enough. And I believe parents, in the midst of all the giving and the getting and all that's going to be so fun, but in the midst of all that, you have this incredible privilege to remind your kids Jesus is all we need. Jesus is enough. We've had such a hard few days in my home. And this morning as I sat with the two guests in our home, and we had been mad and we had been crying and we had had a heck of a morning. And all I could tell them is two little foster children I know that this isn't where you want to spend Christmas. It's not a cakewalk for us either. (laughs) But everything is going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for you. Parents, teach your children. Children, remind your parents. Grandparents, remind your grandchildren. Grandchildren, remind your grandparents. Husbands, wives, remind each other. Hey, remind your neighbors, remind your friends. Jesus is enough. Because you know what? We're going to be tempted to forget that before we walk out those doors. But Jesus is enough. The band's coming. I'm sure they're on their way. Uh, And I just ask you, to sit with this, how's God thwarting me? How's he inviting me to surrender to him, to trust him? What's my next step? Is it to trust Jesus? Is it to recommit my life to him? Is it to join this church family? Is it to answer the call to go? Is it to express, extend forgiveness to someone? Um, The altar's open. You got believers all around you. Grab one of us, a stance.